Ladies and gentlemen in Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. We are fresh off of our conceptual episode, The Unfulfilled Promise 11. And fortunately, we don't have to do another conceptual episode this week because club soccer is back in our lives once again after a very, I think, anxiety-inducing international break for some of us, certainly for the players who had to avoid picking up injuries and picking up positive COVID tests. Nonetheless, we were able to enjoy some very interesting games this weekend and a few statement victories as well, both in London and in Liverpool and some other juicy things to talk about stemming from Leeds Arsenal across in Spain with Barcelona and Atletico Madrid. And we'll also be touching on some PSG and some Monaco as well. But I am joined, as usual, by a man who did not get sent off for Arsenal at the weekend It is Nathan Strauss. Indeed. Although I kind of wish that I had started instead of Pepe because I feel like at least I would have been useful for more than 46 minutes. But, you know. And I am also joined by a man who did not get nutmegged by Yannick Carrasco for (laughs) Atletico Madrid's only goal at the Wanda this weekend. It is Caleb Rhodes. Yes, I am the only fit defender left in Barcelona's squad now. (laughs) All right, lads. Well, before we get on to La Liga and other things around Europe, we are going to begin in the Premier League with, it has to be said, a statement victory for Jose Mourinho's Tottenham, which took them to the top of the table. They beat Manchester City 2-0 at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And Caleb, you and I watched this game together, and I think we both came to the consensus that the second era of Mourinho is upon us. Yeah, I mean, I think we were both shell-shocked by the sheer quality of the performance we saw from Tottenham. I mean, if you look at the statistics, it seems like Manchester City should have won. I mean, they outshot Tottenham 22 to 4. They outpossessed them 66 to 34. They outpassed them. They had more dribbles. But Tottenham's game plan was completely game for this Manchester City team. And and maybe I'll let you talk about this, Nick. Harry Kane was so amazing at literally every second of this game. I don't know. We, we were both, I think for a long time now, we've talked about how Mourinho seems to have lost his way a little bit. Second Chelsea spell didn't go so great. Manchester United didn't go so great. And Spurs honestly seems below his level. But right now Spurs are top of the table and they look very, very good. So I'm curious what, what you guys felt about it because I was certainly just blown away um, by how well drilled this Mourinho team was against Guardiola. I obviously, unfortunately, I wasn't able to watch this game live. I've been dealing with finals and this entire weekend of soccer has felt a little bit surreal to me. Um, But uh, from what I've seen, it seems like my, my previous comments about Spurs hold true, which is that to date through weeks one through nine, they have had the easiest strength of schedule in the entire Premier League. At the same time, this is absolutely a statement victory. And even without introducing Gareth Bale uh, really to playing a significant role for this team. Uh, Mourinho has Spurs firing on all cylinders. And I think it's really damaging again for Pep Guardiola 
because this is not the first time that we've seen City get broken down in the exact same way. Um, the stats that Spurs put up were practically identical to the stats that Arsenal put up when they beat City 2-0 last year. Um, and especially coming, you know, two days after Guardiola signed a contract extension, I think he has a lot of work to do. Uh, more, maybe more so than he has had in his entire City tenure. I will say, though, over the next nine weeks, so for the second half of the first half of the season, the easiest strength of schedule in the entire league does belong to Man City, followed by Liverpool and Arsenal. So if there was ever a time for Pep to maybe uh, put his ego aside and shift things around a little bit, um, this would be the time. I mean, I think the word masterclass gets thrown out a little bit too much these days. You know, master stroke, masterclass, all of the master terminology. But I think I think Caleb will agree with me. It sounds like Nathan's a little bit more on the fence about this. This was a masterclass by Jose. And I think a master a masterclass by Jose long t- that has been a long time coming. And I think Caleb made a couple interesting points that I want to build off of and that I think Jose going to Manchester United, he was never going to be able to make that team into, you know, a proper Jose Mourinho outfit. He was never going to get Manchester United, the brand, to fit into what Jose Mourinho, the brand, is. And I think going to a club like Spurs, it's similar to him going to, you know, Inter Milan at the time that he went to Inter Milan and Porto at the time that he went to Porto. They're a little bit more of an underdog in a rebuilding phase, and he's able to get the pieces around him to in, or, in order for the team to reflect Jose perfectly. You know, Harry Kane setting himself up in center midfield practically and allowing the likes of Son and Bergwijn in this game. Occasionally, it's Lucas Mora, and we've also seen Gareth Bale occupy these places as well. Kane drifting into midfield and allowing the players to sprint beyond him, Reguillon as well, and just allowing himself to be the conductor for all of these elite quality attacking players that they have and I think if you're Gareth Southgate this has to be the way that you use Harry Kane going forward just allowing him to drop into the midfield and letting him you know tie all the strings together for the likes of these pacey quick tricky and creative players and Hunman Son I think the question I don't know why this is even a debate about him being world-class recently the man is a lethal as lethal a finisher on the wing as there is in the game right now and I think Kane and Son are probably on form right now, the best duo in world soccer. I was just so impressed with, you know, the way every single Spurs player played, even the likes of Serge Aurier coming in from the cold for Matt Doherty, who tested positive for COVID, and he had a brilliant game. Eric Dyer, who I think we often make fun of a bit on this podcast, had a brilliant game. They looked extremely organized. They were playing above their level, and more importantly, they are playing to exactly what Jose Mourinho likes to do when he wins games like this and nick we we may have talked about this in our just moments of awe following the the final whistle uh, over the weekend but this tottenham team is showing the total benefits of Mourinho man management which we can actually draw some kind of like lines to from uh all or nothing right in that first meeting between Mourinho and kane Mourinho was like i can make you explode i can make you explode and I can make you one of the best players in the world, Yeah, what he said. Yeah, or since Mourinho has taken charge, in 34-ish games, Kane has 45 goal contributions. Him and Son, as you said, are pretty much the most deadly duo in the world. 
And we've seen even players that Mourinho initially jettisoned, like Ndombele, coming into this team at center attacking midfield to assist. And then we've also seen players like Lo Celso come off the bench and score with pretty much their second touch. Meanwhile, I think one of the things we've talked about for years, for years about Spurs, is how do you improve their team? How do you improve their offense? And interestingly, Mourinho being kind of a fresh face and being someone who likes to kind of dominate um, not just a team but a club sort of had the gall to throw Ericsson and now Deli Ali to the wind. And he's kind of completely refashioned this team in his image um, to just stupendous effect. Yeah, and I think what's important about the Lachelso point is that this Spurs team is re- some sudden, all of a sudden in about in the span of like two weeks over the over the course of the transfer window, incredibly deep. I think Nathan mentioned this. Gareth Bale didn't even touch the pitch. Was it Oliver Reld who had to go off? Joe Roden came on. He's an extremely capable center back. Davinson Sanchez didn't even suit up for this game. Um, Lucas Mora was able to come off the bench. So this Spurs team has depth to contend. You know, we saw somewhat from Liverpool today the fact that they used pretty much all of their depth in order to beat Leicester and, you know, bring in some fringe players in order to get the job done. Spurs, if they need to rotate in the Boxing Day window, they're able to do that and they're able to do that with ease because look at the quality that they've just left on the bench for this game against probably what Nathan has said is like their toughest fixture so far on the Premier League calendar. Yeah, and I mean, I think we're really going to see whether or not Spurs can actually consider themselves title contenders over their next five Premier League games. Well, the Chelsea game coming up is huge. Well, but but their next five Premier League games are Chelsea, Arsenal, Palace, Liverpool, and Leicester. So Mm -hmm. obviously, Palace aside, those are four games against teams that you would expect would finish, you know, in the top seven. Um, Maybe not Arsenal, but... four teams that finished in the top seven last year um and are projected to finish in the top seven according to the 538 page that i have open right now right now spurs have just a six percent chance to win the league according to 538 but if they can take like nine points from 12 i would imagine that that number triples um and it's going to be really really interesting to see how whether jose can get his team to perform against not just a man city that we know has you know certain tactical weaknesses but against Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool um a team that that Liverpool has dominated in the last 5 years the last loss i think that Spurs have dealt Liverpool was three and a half years ago i want to say it was like fall of 2017 so there are going to be some really tough fixtures coming up not to mention that they still have Europa League to contend with but this is definitely the biggest result that Jose has had um, in many, many years. Okay, I'm sorry, but I am. <laughs> I, I like the 538 quotations, but personally, I'm just kind of very suspect of 538 these days. They currently have Barcelona as the third best team in the world, ahead of Liverpool, for instance. <laughs> that, that is not accurate currently. They currently have Tottenham as the 14th best team, worse than Manchester United, Real Sociedad, and Inter Milan. So I don't, I don't trust 538 anymore. I mean, listen, I think it's been a bad month overall for 538, but we don't have to get into, you know, the minutia of the, the, the flaws of Nate Silver's systems over there. But I, I think another thing I want to just point out before we move on is that all of like the Insta Jose stuff, Jose Mourinho kind of clowning <laughs> around on Instagram. I think that's all like a shield. 
that's all a distraction for like he, he's putting up this wall of you know social media content and the all or all or nothing documentary kind of falls into this as well for us to not actually see the work that he's he's doing at spurs he's sort of like making himself once again jose has always been the type of person to use himself to deflect away from his players and i think using like social media is oddly another extension of that jose Mourinho man management that caleb was talking about it also makes him weirdly endearing and Nick, we, we, we talked about this also, having this weird sensation that suddenly Mourinho is more likable than Pep Guardiola. And so I think there's just been this like very weird Freaky Friday role reversal that we've seen with this Tottenham team. Uh, but maybe that's a discussion for another time. Well, next week they have Chelsea. Chelsea, who are also under on the ascendancy under Frank Lampard. They've picked up a lot of points and look pretty impressive over the past couple of weeks. But lads, let's move on to... Oh, wait, no. Wait, we have to talk about... <laughs> Never mind. We're going to stick to Saturday's games because Manchester United had a very interesting moment against West Bromwich Albion, Nathan. Yeah, so we know that since the arrival of Bruno Fernandes to the Premier League that he has been somewhat of a penalty specialist and that United have a reputation that has been, you know, thoroughly earned based on the numbers of being over-reliant on penalties to secure points um, in the league as well as in the Champions League. Well, lo and behold, coming up against relegation favorites West Brom, they required not one, but two attempts to beat Sam Johnstone, who uh, is actually a former United youth product, Fernandez had his first attempt saved uh, because Johnstone came off the line. The referee, I think, correctly deemed them uh, deemed it worthy of a retake. And Fernandez gave his uh, little traditional hop, skip, and a jump run up before burying uh, it on attempt number two. While I think we can all agree that, according to the letter of the law, clearly the referee made the right decision um, because Johnstone was about four feet off his line. Uh, when Fernandes took the first penalty. It is a little damning, I think, that United are relying on a penalty retake to get past West Brom. Yeah, it's pretty disappointing. The Manchester United team just has honestly, they just haven't been clinical. And what's weird is that they put up a lot of shots. Like they they outshot Man U seven, or West Brom 17-7. to seven. They had seven shots on target, but Martial just can't find the back of the net. And this is a problem that goes back to the Europa League last year when in some of those knockout stage games, they would just blast away and they would have to rely on Fernandes um, to get a goal for them to progress. So I don't really know what's going on with this team, but I'm very, I remain very skeptical of them. And it's just kind of a joke at this point, how they keep getting sort of let offs with handballs and such um, that are giving them points that they probably deserve, but don't get the way that they should. Yeah, I think a few damning statistics about United coming into the end of this week is that <laughs> they've only scored 8% of their shots in the league this season, and Diego Jota has scored more goals from open play alone than the entire Manchester United team has this season. <laughs> so certainly some things to figure out if you're Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And I think it's a bit ironic that you know a former club legend who is a striker is uh, having such a hard time finding a way for his team to score goals. But anyways, we're going to move on over to Sunday's game, and we're going to talk about probably the most entertaining nil-nil draw I think I've ever seen. Nathan, is this a good point for Arsenal 
losing Nico Pepe at halftime. We know that Leeds are an extremely capable team and have played the likes of Manchester City and Liverpool very close this season. But I think it has to be said, maybe this is another stumble for Mikel Arteta's arsenal. Yeah, I think to, to answer your question about whether or not this is a good point, I think if you had asked me at kickoff if I would take a draw, I probably would have said no. But I think if you had asked me at halftime, even before Pepe got sent off, if I would take a draw, I would say yes. Um, and for a couple of reasons, obviously you've got the injury to Thomas Partey that he suffered um, in the first half of Arsenal's last game. So you have our best center midfielder out, not to mention the player who's been our second best center midfielder all year, Mohamed Elneny, uh, testing positive for COVID. So we were already fairly weakened. And Arsenal this season have been a team that has been defined by the margins. Um, and losing two key players means that the margins got incredibly, incredibly thin. But then, if you had asked me um, after Nicola Pepe got sent off for a simply moronic and contemptible headbutt for literally no reason whatsoever, like it was so indiscernible that I didn't even catch it on the replay the first time, then I would have absolutely taken the point. Um, and it's a real shame because Pepe... I think is a bust in many of our eyes, even though he has occasionally found himself amongst the goals and assists in the Europa League and in the cup competitions. And he's been clamoring for consistent playing time. And the first time he gets, you know, a real start in his natural position on the right wing against a team that you would think he would be able to get isolated against, um, you know, the fullbacks with one-on-one, -on -one, he goes and not only produces a pretty, you know, slow first half but then gets himself sent off all in all i mean arsenal could have snatched three points it's pretty frustrating again to see that we performed better after we were down to 10 men hector bellerin had a particularly beautiful pass that bukayo saka could have scored but then you know in the 90th minute you have saka going off injured who's been probably our you know second or third best player this year so you know there there's such thing as a pyrrhic victory where you win the battle and lose the war this is sort of a pyrrhic draw if you will. I respected Arsenal's approach for this game. I think Arteta in the past few games saw that his offense was more than anemic. He saw that they just weren't creating chances and weren't really matching up to their opponents. And so he rightfully tried out a new formation today, going to the kind of managerial standard 4-2-3-1. He gave Willock some more time. He brought Pepe in from the cold. He dropped Lacazette, etc. So I think these were all sort of potentially positive moves. Um, I just think, unfortunately, for a lot of reasons, they didn't really work out. And even before Pepe was sent off, Leeds were just tearing Arsenal apart with their play. Just cross-field balls, first-time passing. Jack Harrison looked like James Madison or Jack Grealish on the wing there. The disappointing thing is now we're just seeing more and more Arsenal players getting injured, which not only restricts Arsenal's options, um, but also... There's no also that that's just a big issue. Like they still haven't found something that works and they don't have the personnel that Arteta wants to work with, especially. And so I'm not really sure what's going to happen next because I think they've still only scored what nine goals in the Prem this year, um, which is as many as Hoonman San. And there are other embarrassing gone, statistics. Yeah. Caleb, they've gone over seven and a half hours without scoring a goal from open play. Yeah, so that, that's an embarrassing statistic for a team that has a player like a Bema Yang, who is one of the most lethal strikers of the past half decade or more in Europe. But then there's also stuff like silly things, like the fact that 
Hector Bellerin has the most foul throws um, of any player in the Premier League with four. And it's just, (laughs) (laughs) right? (laughs) So I didn't know that. That's pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just like, you got to get those little things right right now. And I think, unfortunately, Arsenal just can't seem to get the fundamentals correct, whether it's throw-ins, whether it's sort of basic professional behavior from Pepe. And it just kind of leaves the players that really are trying their best, I think, like a Bemiyang, probably dispirited, but also realizing that he has more responsibility than ever. Do you guys remember that scene in, in uh, Avengers Infinity War where Doctor Strange is like using the time stone to like look look into the future and come up with like the one way out of 14 million ways the Avengers can beat Thanos? Because I think this game, Arsenal somehow found the one in 14 million <laughs> game scripts for them to come up with a draw in this one. I was shocked that Leeds United couldn't put the ball in the back of the net. And quite frankly, Caleb, I was shocked that, you know, Arteta went with a bit more of convention, like Nathan was imploring him to do a couple podcasts ago. We saw Obama Yang through the middle. We saw a midfield two of Shabayos and Xhaka. And Shabayos and Xhaka had probably the longest 90 minutes of any midfield duo in the Premier League this season, getting absolutely man-marked out of the game at times by Matthias Click and Stuart Dallas. The first 45 minutes of this game, if you're Mikel Arteta, are extremely worrying because like Caleb said, he hasn't figured anything out yet with this team. He thought it was the back three and now he switches to a back four, which I think he what he would rather like to play leads to potentially more attractive football, more passing football, more progressive football. And I just I think we're seeing that Arsenal squad is really limiting the capabilities of what they can achieve this season. And I think you have to say that like, 11th in the table is probably where this team should be. So I I don't think that this team finishes anywhere close to 11th. I think 6th or 7th is probably where this team winds up. And I I think the fixtures that Arsenal have coming up um, are incredibly easy once we get past the Spurs fixture. We have the easiest Boxing Day period or pre-Boxing Day period in the entire league. But we need to start taking points from teams who we should be expected to beat. Um, and this has really been the thing for Arsenal ever since the last three years of the Wenger era. And I think it's fitting that this week, KSC were rumored to have been financing the transfer of Schoboschlei, um from RB Salzburg uh, for only $21 million, uh, because I think it's very possible that he is another fundamental piece, a young piece for the future midfield that Arteta wants to bring. Because I really think that this all boils down to what you two are both saying, which is that Arteta just doesn't have the correct pieces um, for the team that he, for the for the way he wants to play. I think the the FA Cup win was a little bit of a false. It gave me a lot of false hope, and I think it gave a lot of other Arsenal fans false false hope that somehow like we had completed some sort of rebuild. But it's actually only been forty three. No, Aubameyang scored. Aubameyang scored all of the goals in right. that semifinal yeah. and final run. And if you take Aubameyang's goals out of the team, then this team is, you know, as mid-table. Clearly, I mean, it took Klopp three and a half years, including two, uh, including losing two finals, to get Liverpool to where they want to be. I'm anticipating that it's going to take a similar amount of time for Arsenal to get where Arteta wants them to be. And okay, I think that but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Results like today. Here's the thing: is that under Klopp, Liverpool always 
resembled, even though, you know, they put their foot wrong many times and they lost big games, like you're saying, under Klopp from game one, that nil-nil draw against Spurs, his first match, they were playing the kind of soccer that Klopp wanted them to play. Like Klopp never conceded any ground in terms of, you know, throwing in personnel that maybe didn't fit his style in order to just play the style that he wanted to play. I don't know really what's going on in Mikel Arteta's mind, but I think well, he is maybe, there's a little bit of concession going on in his well, brain. It's also important to remember that Klopp had 15 years of coaching experience, and this is Mikel Arteta's oh, I think that's important. Job. Yeah, absolutely. So like, I, so like, again, I'm willing to wait. I'm willing to be more patient than the Arsenal fan TV guys, because frankly, if you take, if you abstract soccer from this conversation and you think about, say you're a company who's just promoted a boss to a management position for the first time, there are going to be stumbling blocks. Um, and I think my, my new philosophy on Arsenal is, is patience and pragmatism, which comes with, you know, accepting the, the bad results and the bad performances on the pitch that we've been seeing the past couple of weeks with the anticipation that it'll change in the next couple of months. I think the difference between Arsenal and Liverpool is that Liverpool at least had some of the the seeds and pieces that would grow in to be like core players for Klopp's team. Like I wonder who the Henderson is on on this Arsenal team. Certainly it's not Granite Xhaka, who they tried getting rid of last year. Certainly it's not Danny Ceballos, who isn't even owned by Arsenal. And so I just don't know who the the foundational touchstone is for this team. I think you can say Thomas Partey, Bukayo Saka, and Kieran Tierney are probably the three core players, which is admittedly not where you want to be. But if you look at the if you look at that Liverpool lineup that started Klopp's first game, there are only two players left in that squad um, who still play for Liverpool with any sort of regularity, and that's James Milner and Divock Origi. So again, it, it takes time, and I think I definitely agree that there need to be more foundational elements, and that's why I'm hopeful that a player like Shabaslai or a player like Hassam Awar um, might end up being one of those pieces. But again, we're <laughs> to we're a year away from being a year away. You know, fair enough. the The cynical <laughs> take that I can say is perhaps Arteta is proving to be the perfect student of Guardiola, based <laughs> off of Guardiola's performances <laughs> this year. Yeah, so. I think he's <laughs> mimicking mimicking him. Especially well. I think, Caleb, from a Leeds perspective, they're probably not where they want to be in the table, although, you know, maybe just safety is the main objective. But I think after we're kind of getting accustomed to Leeds games being absolute box office, but I think there is a worrying trend that they're not putting away the chances that they need to in order to get their way up the table in order to achieve safety this season. I'm not saying they are going to get dragged into the relegation fight, but the worry for them is that, you know, if you're not scoring the goals, if you're not putting away the massive volume of chances that they create, you know, Rafinha hits the post a few times today. Patrick Bamford hits the post. Um, Rodrigo has a couple shots that go just above the bar. I think you weren't a fan of the Rodrigo signing at all, but what do you think leads need to do aside from maybe it is just putting these chances away in a weird way leads have a very similar issue to to manchester united and that they're just not especially clinical they had 25 shots today and only four of them were on target the difference between them and manu is many but one of them being that you know i think manchester united have the potential to be a lot more clinical certainly i think someone like rashford and martial are misfiring but i think that bamford has already exceeded expectations so far this year and as we said Rodrigo is not a prolific scorer 
So I don't know, and maybe we'll have a better sense after how they do in the sort of holiday period, but they might need to sort of dip back into the market to find someone who can score with some regularity. Because I think they're creating a lot of chances, but they just, they haven't put away any, like Click had a miss that was pretty bad. Harrison had a few chances, but they, they, they cannot find the back of the net. And in a game where they have Arsenal on the ropes, um, that this would have been a massive three points for them because I think they play more attractive football than the points that they're getting. And that's because, you know, they're just not doing the fundamental thing in soccer, which is you have to score. I think Marcel Bielsa has some, uh, some things to figure out in terms of putting the ball into the back of the net for Leeds United. But lads, let's move on over to Anfield. And I think there was a lot of concern from Liverpool fans coming into this game and probably Leicester fans were licking their lips at the prospect of facing a Liverpool team, missing the likes of Virgil van Dijk, their captain, Jordan Henderson, the most prolific, the second most prolific creator in the Premier League, Mohamed Salah, Joe Gomez getting injured over the international break, Andy Robertson coming into this game, playing through a hamstring injury, Fabinho back into the team after a long absence and many other absences for this Liverpool team. However, I think it has to be said, it was a statement win from Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool 3-0 over Liverpool's old man, Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, I think that this game makes me rethink my statement in our Premier League intro uh, or preview episode um, where I sort of doubted Liverpool's... I didn't. I wouldn't say I doubted their mentality, but I, I just doubted the, their ability to perform consistently given the injuries and their, thin, their thinness, particularly at the back. But... They came up against a team that has, you know, one of the best strikers in the last five years in the Premier League um, and a team that has been able to put up some pretty impressive performances against, you know, Man City, for example. And this was just a pure mentality victory. Diogo Jota is playing like 2007 Ronaldo. Um, Even Firmino, despite being denied a goal by 10 millimeters, managed to get on the score sheet. Uh, so that's when you know that things are really, you know, going your way. And I think we should talk about Klopp's comments after the game because obviously his his comments were reflected in the sort of bodies that Liverpool had on the pitch. But huge win, I think, for Liverpool in this one. Yeah, this this win shocked me in a lot of ways just because I thought Liverpool were really going to struggle. But like the the defense they put out honestly was was better than I like in my head I imagined them playing like Nat Phillips and Neko Williams and potentially even Simicus along with Matip. And that that is a truly probably championship level defense. But Robertson, Fabinho, Matip, Milner is, you know, it's it's solid. They had an acid test today against a, on paper, very talented Leicester team, and they did quite well. I think it's a little worrying now. The midfield is honestly probably their biggest problem with Kaita going down, especially if they want to keep playing Fabinho at the back. But Firmino looked like he was ready to respond to the haters. He had like six or seven shots today. I know he came close a few times, but he finally got that goal. Jota continued his good form. Mane is goalless in the Premier League for three or four games now, but still looked very threatening. So I was, this this result allayed a lot of my fears about Liverpool and I think should give fans a lot of solace um, in the next few weeks. But I think there are still some potential squad thinness especially in the midfield that will be worth watching because I'm not sure we can expect 
sort of very solid performances like this from Curtis Jones every game. Like, I don't think he's ready to play every three days yet, um, but, but maybe I'm wrong. There was a lot of questions that were asked before this game, and Jurgen Klopp answered all of them by just saying, we're just going to figure it out. And I think that's that's really what this Liverpool team is best at. Whenever there's like a, a, a fear coming into a game, Liverpool tend to respond really, really well. You know, and I, I think the biggest fear that Liverpool fans have this season is the lack of Virgil van Dijk and now the lack of Joe Gomez. And they've conceded less goals without Virgil van Dijk than they had before when he was still in the team. So they've gotten better in defense without him. And I think that is due to the fact that they are blessed with an abundance of technically gifted players on the ball ahead of the defense. They absolutely outpossessed Leicester in every phase of the game. They dominated them on the ball. They exhausted them. Curtis Jones, Jeannie Vinaldum, and Roberto Firmino were dragging the likes of Jamie Vardy, Tielemans, and Madison out of position so that when Leicester did eventually get back onto the ball, they really had no avenue to pass into. James Milner uh, was rolling the years back in this game. Uh, he looked, you know, Christian Fuchs was his opposite number in the Leicester defense today, you know, another aging defender. And Christian Fuchs looked like he was, you know, five or 10 years older than James Milner, even though Milner is the elder statesman of the two. Um, I, I just think this was a performance that resembled Jurgen Klopp to a T, you know, resiliency, domination, pressing. And at the end of the day, you just have to figure it out with the pieces that you have. And um, I was a little shocked, you know, hearing people like David Ornstein report that Liverpool aren't particularly interested in tipping into the January market to find a center back. I still don't think that's entirely true. I do think that we kind of forget how good Liverpool's squad is all across the board. It is a little worrying to see Nabi Kaita go off injured. And I think, you know, we can get on to Klopp's comments after the game about five substitutes and also the fact that they, the Premier League managers did have a Zoom meeting over the international break in which it seems like a lot of them are now starting to come to the side of that we need five substitutes in the Premier League. But I just think this was an absolute statement win for Liverpool. And I always love getting one over <laughs> Brendan Rodgers, who probably thinks he, uh, <laughs> he built Anfield with his bare hands every time he comes back to the ground. So, <laughs> yeah, I just think this is a really impressive win from Liverpool. And it was exactly what I wanted to see. It was resilience to a T. That's what brought us to that. That is what brought us to the title last season. It's good to see that the identity of the team doesn't change regardless of who's in the eleven. I saw a great quote on Brendan Rodgers from, from one of the soccer pundits I follow on Twitter that was something along the lines of, Brendan Rodgers has been cursed with being a perfectly good manager in an era of masterminds. Should we talk about, before, before we move on to, to across the channel, um, should we talk for a second about Klopp's little rant? Yeah, because there was some, uh, some producer editing here with certain broadcasters that left out four minutes of a Jurgen Klopp style rant uh, post-match. You know, normally most managers be very happy with the fact that they've beaten a team in the top four, 3-0 at home. Jurgen Klopp, not so much. I think there's a lot about, you know, the current state of the game that he had to get off his chest. And we will post the Jurgen Klopp rant in the show notes if you want to go take a look. But Nathan, what do you think about, you know, his comments about the need for player protection in the Premier League and the need for broadcasters and especially the FA to uh, highlight that a little bit more. I mean, he's totally right. I mean, I think 
I'll focus on what I I'll focus on what I think was correct that he said, um, and that is that if the FA and broadcasters don't give these players a little bit of a break, which means maybe reducing the frequency of these midweek games that have teams playing Wednesday and then Saturday or Wednesday and then Sunday or Thursday and then Sunday um, at you know 12.30 p.m., you're going to see more and more star players go down injured. And from a business perspective, losing, in theory, your best employees or your best product is bad. You know, I can only imagine there's some sort of correlation between star players getting injured and seeing a slight decline in viewership, because that's what the power of having a player like Mo Salah does. He did seem to come after broadcasters aggressively. Um, and I think that the interviewer was caught off guard a little bit and got a little defensive. And I don't really blame them because, you know, it's hard to deal with that if you're <laughs> if you're not prepared for that kind of combativeness. Yeah. Um, and Jurgen Klopp is a very big man, like very right. big, just intimidating physical presence when you're interviewing him. So I can I, I can imagine yeah. why he was a little bit, you know, on the back foot in that interview. Of course. And I mean, like <laughs> you're getting yelled at by an angry German, like it's going to be a little scary. Um, because I think that at the end of the day, as much as broadcasters are motivated by money, the FA is the most motivated by money, um, which comes from the broadcasters themselves. So I've been advocating for this since COVID hit. But we need to see more strict guidance and crisis measures from the FA because whether they like it or not, the next two years are huge for the future of European soccer because you have the postponed Euros tournament coming up in eight months. Then you have the Winter World Cup starting two years from this week. And then you have another summer tournament after that, which means that half of these players that are playing in the Premier League aren't going to get more than two or three weeks of rest at all. Um, which is just completely unsustainable. And even if you compare the Premier League to other leagues that give, you know, a three-week break from Boxing Day on, the Premier League doesn't and never has done that. So there are some serious issues with scheduling that need to be addressed because all it takes is, say, two cruciate ligament injuries to a De Bruyne and a Sala before the Premier League starts to lose actual monetary value. So I want them to nip this in the bud, but I doubt that they will in true right. style. Right. And another thing that I was thinking about, Nathan, is that eventually we're going to get all the bullshit preseason tournaments back in countries like, you know, Asia and maybe even America. Yes, the famed country at some point. Yeah. So, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Ages. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a book. Sorry, that was unnecessary. But... <laughs> no, you're right. I had a book growing up. <laughs> I had like a, a, a paper, I had a, a hardcover book, like an illustrated book growing up called Africa is not a country. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and it went through to like all different, like the nations in Africa. But it just like that comment really reminded me of that. So your but mom yeah, clearly like, forgot to get you the other book in that series. <laughs> Asia is not a country. <laughs> if you take oh. anything away from this podcast, know this. There are seven continents in the world. Asia and Africa are both one of them. Um, if anything, you know, we're going to see fixture congestion start to ramp up towards the summer, especially after the, the you know, tournaments like the euros i think once fans are back in stadiums um sponsors are going to want preseason tournaments again caleb and i think you know what is your reaction to klopp's comments and nathan's comments the the player protection thing is important I'm, I'm trying to think of ways to reduce the congestion i think in england you just have to get rid of the league cup which is useless anyway um and then i think the issue with some of these preseason things 
like the ICC is that we just saw recently in the news. So when Juventus went to South Korea, I believe it was, uh, they didn't play Ronaldo. They left him on the bench. And then some fans who went to the game sued Juventus <laughs> for, for like false emotional advertising, distress. Oh, emotional distress. Right. And they actually won. And Juventus had to give back some refund of the tickets and also some monetary damages. So unfortunately, as soon as the stupid ICC turns up, there's now a kind of precedent where if you don't play your big players, then you can actually kind of be sued for it. So there's kind of a vicious cycle there. But definitely the Premier League more so than, than other leagues really overworks their players. And I think it's a league that seems to be especially hit by not just COVID, but also injuries in general. Um, and once again, we've talked about this before. A lot of it has been very localized to Liverpool, but there's no reason that should be true. Um, and it seems likely that we're going to start seeing more injuries throughout the league as well. We saw Saka uh, for Arsenal, but I, I think as these players just get worn out, they're they're literally going to wear down. So, Well, they're all muscular injuries, which indicates that it is just fatigue that is catching up with all these players. And I think you're right. If you know we turn up to a Premier League game, Let's say it's like Man City versus Liverpool in 2021 and Salah, Mane are missing for Liverpool and, you know, De Bruyne, Sterling, Aguero, Bernardo Silva are missing for Man City. What does that really say about the competitivity of the league anymore and the watchability of the league? And and international breaks also play a huge role in this. And obviously we touched upon that before, but like take Thomas Partey, you know, you play... uh, you're playing for Atleti Madrid week in and week out. Then you get transferred to Arsenal. Before you play a game for Arsenal, you travel to Ghana and play two games with the Black Stars. Then you travel back to England, immediately start playing 90s, you know, twice a week. Of course, you're going to get injured. Like, it's nuts. Yeah. Even another one is Nabi Kaito wasn't back at full fitness before he left for Guinea duty. And the Guinea national team manager stuck him at striker for 95 minutes in both matches before he returned to Liverpool. And guess what? He suits up to play today and he goes down with a, looks like a hamstring injury. Half the league is at the point where in football manager, you would have like the, the little orange blinking light to let you know that they're on low condition. Yep, exactly. No, I totally agree. Just before we move on, I think an important historical note to round out our Liverpool discussion is that they are now 64 games uh, unbeaten at home, which is absolutely absurd. The last time they lost at home, was in 2017 to Crystal Palace. Sadio Mane came to the club in 2016. And I guess he missed that game against Crystal Palace because he has never lost at Anfield in his Liverpool career. This Jurgen Klopp Liverpool continuing to uh, break some ground in terms of you know their page in history. But in terms of another page in history over in La Liga, Atletico Madrid have triumphed over FC Barcelona 1-0 thanks to a Yannick. Carrasco, nutmeg, uh, very clean style finish off of a breakaway, making Marc-Andre Ter Stegen look a little bit Manuel Neuerish as he was in uh, Spain's 6-0 demolition of Germany. Caleb, we know that Atleti are our favorites for La Liga on this podcast. They are now second in the table with the game in hand on Real Sociedad. But let's look at it from a Barcelona perspective first. This is another big loss this season. It leaves Barcelona 12th in the table. And now Clement Langlais is the only senior defend is the only senior center back left for the club to deploy going forward after PK announced with a injury that will leave him sidelined for up to four months. This was a pretty like emblematic loss, I think, for our season as a whole. 
in the sense that Carrasco's goal against us, it, it, it was like a split between Ter Stegen making a massive, perfect tackle in the midfield and Carrasco was just able to just nudge it under uh, and between Ter Stegen's legs, which turned it into a terrible error. But of course, he was, you know, only put in that situation because of a bad giveaway. This Barcelona team, once again, we just couldn't quite get it done offensively. I think we we matched up pretty well to an Atleti team that was in good form. Um, and we we outshot them and sort of outpossessed them. But at the end of the day, things just aren't really breaking our way. Messi just doesn't really, he just isn't looking as sort of like transcendent in, in open play. Griezmann, once again, did not look like France Griezmann. He looked like kind of sad Griezmann. Pedri <laughs> had a bad game. And I was I think it was, Barcelona received some criticism for this. Uh, they sent Pedri to face the press after the loss, just like they sent Serginho Dest to face the press after the El Clasico loss. And so I think there's this sense of abdication of responsibility from some of the higher-ups in the team. Again, I think this is an example of the 4-2-3-1 not working especially well, although Dembele did look good at points. But I think the big issue is, you know, without PK, who's a big leader, without Sergio Roberto for, you know, extended periods of time, we are going to be looking at a very young team. It's a young team that I don't think is necessarily ready for a title challenge. And so I kind of fear for what the next few months are going to be like. Again, I'm going to say we really have to just change back to a 4-3-3. I don't care how much Coman dislikes Alenia and Puig, but especially, you know, if he decides to put someone like De Jong at center back, which is very possible, he's going to need to start playing those players. This is this is this was not honestly like the worst loss. Like I don't think we were roundly outplayed, but I think things just didn't fall our way. And now with all these injuries, there are just like a lot of questions that Coman just doesn't seem fully prepared to answer. Yeah, I think <laughs> I got the same vibe actually from Barca losing to Atleti as I got from the Arsenal game, uh, which I watched or the and I, and I was watching with you, Caleb. And again, a game that was decided on the margins. Uh, I would like to one... say that I was also there for the Barcelona Atleti game. Oh, that's true. You were there. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, were you, did you were you did you arrive late is that why my mind has like, i was there like five minutes late <laughs> whatever Dude, again i've been That's i've been tough. very busy this weekend yeah the, the injuries are bad i think de Jong can function as a center back especially against opponents like dynamo kiev and ferenc Varis. but it's going to be a lot harder coming up against sociedad um and you know other tough teams fortunately pk should be back by the next classico um but Definitely a less than ideal result. And now, I mean, you're going to see a back four of what, you know, Serginho Dest. Well, the right side of our defense is going to be a real issue, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're playing a wing of Dembele and Dest, and then you have an out of position De Jong, right? Like if, if I'm another team, I'm putting my best attacker on that left wing because they're going to have a field day, an absolute field day. Dude, I really thought this was the game for Dembélé. I thought he'd been accumulating some relatively good performances as of late, and I was like, all right, this is this is the time. Usmane Dembélé is finally going to deliver on the big stage. And I think we've just seen it, <laughs> just seen again, like another Barcelona winger can't produce in a big game. And I, I hit a few kind of errant shots. 
He looked decent at times, dragging at Letty players out of position, but at Letty are so well drilled that you have to be extremely elite on the wing. And I don't know. I was just disappointed in Barcelona's performance. And like you said, I think Messi looks very, very human this season, Caleb. For at Letty, you know, this game, a lot of the sting got taken out of it because Luis Suarez tested positive for COVID. But the fact that they were able to get this result without him, I think bodes incredibly well for their season. And I think the important thing is that Diego Simeone's team normally gets these really ridiculous, you know, like 1-1 draws, 2-2 draw, or not 2-2 because they never score more than two goals in the games, let's be honest. But <laughs> like they get, you know, like 1-1 draws against the likes of Granada, Ibar, teams that they really should be beating. And this season, we've only really seen that once. So I think Atleti are becoming way more ruthless. Jao Felix looks like he's turning into a real leader up front for them. And I think once they get Luis Suarez back, they could be uh, clearing a pathway to that La Liga trophy. Do we want to take a quick trip to France before we wrap up? Yeah, absolutely. Take yeah, us there. I, I love going to France. Personally. Me too. I've actually, I've, I've, I've hiked through France. I've never really spent any substantive time. I've actually mm. spent more time in Andorra than I have in France, which is beautiful country. But is there a team that is more fun to watch lose in the entire world than PSG? I'm asking this genuinely because it really is fun. it really is fun to watch PSG lose and especially when it comes in the form of blowing leads it looked like the Kylian Mbappe show out there as the young phenom scored two injury. goals back from injury against his former team that gave him his first opportunity as a 16-year-old but a colossal 45 minutes from Cesc Fabregas Led. I just want to. I want to say it was interesting that Caleb made this point when we were watching the Barcelona game. That Coke's full name is Coke Resurrección. I think Sesc <laughs> should change his name to Sesc Resurrección Fabregas because that's exactly what happened here when he entered the game for Monaco against PSG. But continue, Nathan. Absolutely, yeah. No longer is he Sesc Fabregas Soler. He is now known as Sesc Fabregas Resurrección de Cristo. Or something like that. Yeah, Cesc Fabregas totally changed the game. PSG and and Tuchel, again, showed that they have zero mental fortitude whatsoever. Not to mention that they have no depth. They were subbing in 17 and 18-year-olds like Kays Ruiz Atil, who are nowhere near capable of playing at the level that Tuchel has asked them to play at. And the final was a 3-2 victory sealed by a Cesc Fabregas penalty uh, in the 88th minute. Tuchel's got to be thinking that his time is almost up at this point, right? So on the one hand, you're like, yes, this is a very bad result. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, they're still top of Ligue 1 and we're not far enough in the Champions League yet to really assess their season. So like, I, I know it feels weird. They've lost three times in their first 11 games, which is obviously poor for a PSG team that honestly could go unbeaten if they only cared at all about Ligue 1. Um, but but here they are, and also I think they have a bunch of defensive players that they just didn't play today, like call like Dagba started, but they still have Florenzi. Diallo started, but Marquinhos was on the bench, um, so I don't think it was a fully full strength team. But at the same time, it, it does feel very PSG for them to kind of take an early two nil lead and then think they're you know ready to go, and then suddenly. Uh, just Monaco come back. I I also think I just every time I look at this Monaco team, I'm just like surprised like who they have. But yeah, I think Caleb, you're absolutely right. You know, Kevin Kevin Volland is sort of like a random player that they brought in, quite the like of 
the likes of Stefan Jovetic, who arrived at the club a few seasons ago. But I think the worry for PSG is that if, if they're getting played off the park by a 34-year-old Cesc Fabregas over the course of a 30-minute period, then I think we're, we might be you know, coming to the conclusion. I, I, I don't think... I'm not basing this off of their performance in this game. I just think overall you're starting to hear you're starting to hear the wheels crank on the fact that you know the PSG this this era of PSG is probably you know coming to an end. You know the Mbappe Neymar era of PSG, the Di Maria era of PSG as well. They haven't renewed his contract yet. So if those three players end up leaving in the summer and I don't see any reason why they would want to stay on with this project then I think we could be looking at a full-scale rebuild. But the sad thing is that they'll still win Ligue right? Like, a, a, even this team without Mbappe and Neymar and even Di Maria, I honestly think if they still have Icardi around, like, Sarabia, I think that team can still win Ligue 1. It'd be tighter, but I, I don't... And, and I think that just underscores the fact that this league is is just a joke. I also didn't realize that Niko Kovac was the, the Monaco coach. Uh, yeah, out of the blue. I mean, Monaco they really faded from being relevant so fast. I guess that's what happens when you sell like your entire starting 11 um, over the course of ent- of a year. But yeah, this Monaco team, definitely there are no 2016 Monaco. That's well, I think that's the thing is that they compiled all of those talented resources for that one electric team that won Liga in 2016, 2017. And then they just had to sell all their assets because their club financially isn't in the best place. So I think the Monaco project, you know, over the past 10 years has just been reduced to these great moments, like knocking Manchester City out of the Champions League and, you know, winning that league and title. There's been no real sustained success from any other club in Liga, like Caleb was saying, except for PSG. Well, we didn't get to cover everything that happened in Europe this weekend, which is fine because so much is going on in the soccer world right now. The likes of Zlatan Ibrahimovic uh, leading AC Milan to the top of the Serie A table. Even the likes of Bodo Glint in Norway, the first Arctic team to claim a league title. So there is a lot of exciting, eclectic things happening in soccer right now. But we'll be back to break it all down at some point this week. The Champions League returns once more as well as the Europa League for you Arsenal and Tottenham fans and Leicester fans out there but I've been Nick Vinden Caleb Rhodes Nathan Strauss and we will see you all next time <laughs>